Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everybody. It's a great day to travel and leave positive footprints. Welcome to World Footprints Radio. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're broadcasting to you from Glacier Country in western Montana. The sounds of nature you hear in the background are from Glacier National Park, and it's the setting for our Montana journey. The first stop on our Montana journey in Glacier Country is the town of Whitefish, an enchanting arts and culinary center, and we will introduce you to Betsy and Woody Cox, the owners of the Good Medicine Lodge. Whitefish is also the gateway to our second stop, where we're broadcasting from Glacier National Park, We'll take you deep inside Glacier National Park to share some of its charms with the help of Mike Davies of Glacier Guides. Then it's off to the town of Haver, Montana to experience Haver Underground, a town beneath the town. And our final stop on this journey will be a safari experience on the Great Plains with Jacob Dusick of Sage Safaris. As always, if you have a question or a comment, write to us at comments at worldfootprints.com. We love sharing our travel adventures with you, and we welcome you to follow us in real time from our social networks on Facebook and Twitter and others, which you can find from our website at worldfootprints.com. And also, whilst there, sign up for our newsletter. In the northern Montana town of Whitefish, they like to say, it's not who you are, it's how you live. Whether you're a local or just visiting Whitefish, the living is pretty good here thanks to an abundance of fishing, skiing, and recreational opportunities afforded by Glacier National and other nearby parks. Betsy and Woody Cox, the accidental innkeepers of the Good Medicine Lodge in Whitefish, share their Montana story and a dose of good medicine as we introduce them to you. What is special about Montana? What brought you here? We were looking for a place to uh, retire and a a place to live where we could um, welcome our family and friends to visit and they they would find it to be a place that they would come whether or not we were here. And so we searched for about seven years all through the Rockies. Uh, always in mountain towns. That was a, a key ingredient. It had to be a mountain town. We thought we were going to ski every day. Um, that's a whole other story. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> but um, Montana had the, the, the climate that we were looking for and thought we could live with forever and the uh, the mix of, of mountains and lakes and green. Woody, I know you enjoy skiing, and that was one of the attractive things about moving to Montana. Talk to us about what Montana has meant to you uh, in the time that you've been here. Well, skiing is wonderful here. Uh, we have, as I think, uh, champagne snow, a very dry snow, powders, a lot of powder, And as Betsy said, I don't ski every day now, but I still get to ski quite a bit and enjoy it so much. Now, you guys have a very special inn here in Montana, uh, here in Whitefish. Tell us about that and, 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 and just what visitors who would stay here would experience. Well, just the name alone, Good Medicine Lodge, I think says a lot about um, our intention here and uh, good medicine for the the Native Americans is anything that brings harmony to your life, and so we find that that 
what we hope we've created here is a very relaxing, calming, welcoming place. And it seems to translate in that way to our guests that um, good med- they come not understanding maybe the concept of good medicine, um, but they leave knowing that they've gotten good medicine. Woody, as uh, the owner here, you get to welcome people from all over and into truly one of the warmest, most comfortable places one could imagine. Talk to us about uh, just about the uh, experience. Uh, people who, who come here will feel right at home. The wood grain paneling, the wonderful breakfast to start off the morning, the fantastic uh, cookies uh, and teas and champagne and wine uh, for uh, evening hours. It's it's just a great experience to really make one kind of get out of that element, particularly if they're coming from a big city to get them in the mood for relaxation. Thank you for being a great ambassador. You've covered <laughs> almost everything. No, we do have six rooms and three suites, and we welcome people from around the world. And it's it's wonderful. It's a highlight of my day when new guests come in with a smile on their face, and hopefully we can just add to their enjoyment. Um, whitefish is so beautiful. We have everything from golf to fly fishing to hiking to skiing to dog sledding to mountain biking. They're just activities for any interest area, and it's a joy to be a part of uh, having people uh, stay here on their vacations. The town itself is pretty remarkable from just the collection of restaurants, the downtown area itself. It's it's surprising for an outsider, I guess, coming here for the first time to realize just how much diversity you've got a Frank Lloyd Wright home or building right here in the heart of the city. That's, you know, most people would probably be surprised to find that here in uh, Montana. We certainly enjoy it, and our guests enjoy it. Yes, uh, the restaurants here, we've lived in Washington, D.C. and St. Paul, Minnesota, and the restaurants here are just incredible. Uh, we we have so many of favorites and, and can uh, go out to a different one anytime uh, and always have an enjoy, uh, enjoyable meal. Betsy, what is it, what is it for you about whitefish? Because uh, I think uh, when... Uh, an outsider may look at it, they might say, oh, I'm, I'm isolated. But this place really has been growing. It's nearly doubled in population in the time that you guys have been here. And so it's attracting a lot of people across so many different sectors. There's a vibrant arts community here with very notable people such as Olivia Dukakis and John Lithgow, who've been in the forefront of bringing world-class uh, legitimate theater to this area. That's just one of the surprising things about Whitefish. Well, we're fortunate that um, those folks want to live in a community like Whitefish, and I think it's because it is a community. It's a resort town, so it offers a lot. As, as Woody said, the, the restaurants are incredible. Um, it offers a lot for people to do with the resort activity, um, but it is a community first and foremost, and, and it's a good, solid community, good people, and they draw other good people, and everybody works together, and they, they bring um, people who, who have the ability to, to contribute um, large amounts toward 
um, improving the community have brought a lot of the culture to Whitefish for everyone to enjoy, and they've made it possible for uh, all economic levels of the town to enjoy all of that and participate in it. And I think that's that was the thing that won us over. Just a short distance away from Whitefish is Glacier National Park, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. With over a million acres and 730 miles of maintained trails, Glacier National Park is a sight to behold. From its mountains, waterfalls, and streams, the park has 10,000 years of archaeological history behind it. More than 70 different varieties of mammals live in Glacier, including grizzly bears, wolves, and even wolverines, not of the Michigan variety, dear. And so does one of the sweetest berries on earth, which we've been enjoying every day, the huckleberry. Let's get to know Glacier National Park better with the help of Mike Davies of Glacier Guides, who literally has Glacier as his office. Mike tells us why Glacier is so lush and green. Here we are on the, on the west side of the park, Glacier National Park. Um, and it, as, as the weather system moves in, it, it kind of slams into the Continental Divide. And all that moisture will drop and, and, uh, and settle down here. So it's very lush, very green. Um, we have a lot of the Douglas fir, uh, western red cedars, um, very similar to, to the Oregon and uh, Washington forests that you would see out in the northwest. Um, hence, it's considered the eastern part of that, that northwest rainforest. The biggest lake in the park is McDonald Lake, which is fed by McDonald Creek which you can hear rushing in the background, as Mike tells us. McDonald was named after a trapper who uh, carved his name on one of the trees over by Lake McDonald. Um, back in the, he carved it back, I think, 1868 or so, so late 1800s. Fire remains one of the biggest threats to Glacier, but necessary to keep the ecosystem in balance. Large fires tend to increase the nutrient load in streams from erosion in the short term, which can be both good and bad. Long term, the effect from fires are neutral or positive. Mike tells us about some of the recent fires here at Glacier that help to maintain that tricky eco-balance equation. One of the bigger fires on the west side was uh, the Rogers fire. Um, they evacuated West Glacier there. That was back in... Uh, Early, uh, early 2000s, um, and then a few years ago, big the Red Eagle fire was a big fire, kind of on the on the east side um, of the park. Usually, fire fire season when it happens, uh, kind of the latter part of the summer. Uh, this year was definitely a, a milder summer for us, so we didn't we didn't see uh, see forest fires. Uh, in this area too much. Nothing, nothing big. They are, aren't they? <laughs> They're nice and flat, yeah. This tree is kind of a good illustration of just how, you know, how the roots are shallow. It's, it's nice and flat. It's not going deep into the ground there. types of rock, the, the red, the iron's oxidized in the rock, so that kind of gives it its color, whereas the green it has not. Um, and a lot of them, 
these are they're very old rocks but uh what was going on here um way 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 back when um the felt sea um and which was this shallow sea that existed throughout this whole area spread all the way down uh towards what's present day california and mexico um and it was real sandy and muddy so on a lot of our rocks you'll still see the ripple marks um from as you know as it became rock those were those kind of formed formed within them um so geologists love the park uh they have access to easy access to ancient ancient rock uh, which is really neat uh for them and then you know as we other factors that have kind of created the park um what we call the Lewis overthrust, um, you know, pushing pushing our peaks up, and then the glaciers carved out our valleys and our lakes, um, and really what what shaped um, what we see here. Typically, when it's a little clearer, <laughs> with our peaks and our valleys and whatnot. Um, Glacier-wise, there's about 20 odd glaciers left in the park that's still considered a glacier. Um, you know, it's. The number is the number is dwindling. Um, they say latest theory is between around 20, 20, 20, 30. Uh, they will no longer actually be glaciers. Um, they'll be reduced to snowfields, um, and you can get into the whole whole debate over over that and, and climate change and whatnot. Um, but the the big significance is is this area was formed um, and was shaped by those glaciers that have existed and have kind of created this. Um, just the, the glorious uh, valleys and peaks that you, you see in the different formations. Um, especially when you get up into the, some of the higher country, you really see what they did. Um, further up to going to the Sun Road is the Garden Wall and up towards Logan Pass, which is you know one of the most popular spots within the park. Um, and there's the High Line Trail there, which goes along um, what we call the Garden Wall. And it's in a rep formation which is basically a knife edge, uh, kind of similar to my hand on both sides and glaciers ha have carved it away. And what's left is just this um, sheer wall and it's, it's quite spectacular. Um, so that's, that's one of the dominant features we see in the park and then there's a few others that you can also notice. One of the best ways to travel Glacier National is on board an open-air jammer, which we learned about from Tia Troy of Glacier Country, the tourism body charged with promoting Western Montana. They run all the lodges and they also do the investors. And so jammers are the drivers and they dress up in the, the white shirts and the pressed pants and they take you on interpretive tours. But it's cool because the Reds, um, they all run on propane now. So they're environmentally friendly. They seat about 18 people. Mm -hmm. It's a fantastic way to see the park. Um, the tops pop off of them, so you can just see all around you. You don't have to worry about driving on the road because the road can get kind of... I mean, it's fun to drive on, but if you're trying to take in the sights, you don't want to be driving it. So the reds are a great way to see the park. And they've kind of become the icon of Glacier. Like, a lot of people think of the red buses when they think of Glacier. The drivers were called jammers because they'd have to jam it into gear uh, as they were operating. From Triple Divide Peak inside the park, water can theoretically flow to the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans and Hudson Bay in Canada, which is one of the reasons why Glacier is called the crown of the continent. Mike tells us more about the big river, the flathead, that flows through Glacier National. Yeah, I don't know. 
maybe 700 CFS or so. Uh, probably between five and a thousand CFS. So it fluctuates a lot. It's a wild and scenic river. Um, so it's not dam controlled. Um, it just flows at its natural state. Uh, it'll usually flood um, in springtime. Doesn't always flood, but that high water is kind of May. And it all just depends on um, how snow melts. So that flood of 64 was a huge snow year. And then um, a, a warm rain in June. And so it brought all that snow down at once and just flushed the, uh, the whole river out. Um, flushed a tunnel further up river, filled that um, with, with all kinds of debris, cattle, uh, railroad tracks, um, and they, they called it the 500-year flood for the area. Now, the color here is different, I'm assuming, because of the, the rock flower that gives it that turquoise greenish color uh -huh. here. Yeah, um, we'll see that. We'll see the same color in a lot of the lakes, um, and it's basically that, that glacial silt or glacial flower. Um, so it gives it that, that beautiful aqua marine color. Um, you'll be at a lake and think you're at the Caribbean or, you know, mm -hmm. on the ocean. Uh, but at the same time, in the spring, this will be this will be brown, um, and then it'll it'll clear up and get till you could see you know all the way to the bottom, and then it as it kind of just mellows out, it gets to that that green um, blue color. It's it's fun to watch it it change because it changes so much. Yeah. <clears throat> so upriver is our that's the one of the last rapids. Um, so then. You, you flow through here through that uh, white water section but the rapids change with the flow of the river also this is where they jump in from you want to go <laughs> <laughs> nice and cold the river temperature whole lot throughout. Oh. I mean, you know, it, it changes a bit, but it's mostly the air temperature that really mm -hmm. gets people to jump in. So we make wetsuits mandatory until the air temperature gets to a, yeah. I think it has to get to like 80 or something. You know, people, I've been told scuba, scuba dive over at Lake McDonald. Mm quite a bit. Supposedly there's some neat stuff going on down there. Good visibility. Yeah. That suit's required. Yeah. Coming up on World Footprints Radio, the next stop on our Montana journey is the town of Essex in a special place known as the Isaac Walton Inn. Sunset Magazine calls one of the top ten uh, cross-country ski resorts in the Rockies. So that's, that's a pretty big honor. We were excited about that. That was just a couple of years ago. So it's um, really the only year-round resort in Glacier National Park. Next on World Footprints Radio. Hi, I'm Tia from Montana, and I love World Footprints Radio. Want to travel for less? Visit the worldfootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive, non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners, and you can't find these deals anywhere else. We've seen sales for as little as $9 a night for hotel rooms and $49 airline tickets. So stop by worldfootprints.com to see where you can go for less. 
Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services like passport processing. I'm inspired to serve my community based on the fact that I get so much back from it. Ken Wyben, USO Volunteer. This is a great country, and if people were to go ahead and step up to the plate by volunteering or doing something for their fellow man, this country will be greater than it ever was. Lead. Inspire. Change the world again. Join thousands and find which volunteer opportunity is best for you. Call 1-800-424-8867 today or visit www.getinvolved.gov. This message is brought to you by the Corporation for National and Community Service on this station. Hi, I'm Aisha from Connecticut via India, and I would encourage you to listen to worldfootprints.com. It's a great radio station, so do tune in. Thank you. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints Radio. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. The next stop on our Montana journey is just on the edge of Glacier National Park. And it's a town that owes its existence to the railroads. Essex, Montana has a special place in the hearts of railroading enthusiasts because of the Isaac Walton Inn. Opened in 1939, the Isaac Walton Inn made its way onto the National Register of Historic Places in 1985. The inn, built to house overnighting railroad employees of the Great Northern Railway, is a warm and comfortable place that harkens back to a different era. From its welcoming fireplace to the Huckleberry-inspired dishes on the menu of the dining car restaurant and the club basement-like flagstop bar, the Isaac Walton Inn makes you forget that over 250 inches of snow fall here annually each winter, which is why it's a popular cross-country ski resort as well. David Gatton, the Inn's general manager, joins us inside the dining car restaurant to share the remarkable story of the Isaac Walton Inn and why railroading enthusiasts find heaven here. In uh, 1939, for the Great Northern Railway, uh, it was built actually to house the employees of the railroad, which is kind of the interesting thing about it. We're unlike any other lodges. All the other lodges were built to bring tourists here. We were built to house the staff that were going to take care of the railways to bring them here. Um, and it was maintained as such until the uh, 1950s when the Great Northern Railway had sold it to, well, it was never really owned by the Great Northern Railway, but they gave it to a, a couple who bought it. Um, there's only been three families that have owned it, and they turned it into a historic inn. And um, it's been maintained as such uh, since the, I think it was mid-1950s. I'm not an expert on the history. But, uh, <laughs> um, picture. And uh, it didn't used to have bathrooms. That's one of the things most people remember about the Isaac Walton, is they did a lot of $8 room specials in the 1980s because it was shared bathrooms down the hallway. And it was remodeled in 1995 by the previous owners, uh, Larry and Linda Veyu, who commissioned the history here. And uh, they did a lot of upgrading to the inn and, and uh, made a lot of changes, sort of made it into the, the historic inn that it is now. Um, Brian and Mary Kelly bought it about four and a half years ago, and they're continuing the, the tradition. It's 33 rooms. We have six cabooses now. Six caboose cabins. There's four on the hill across the way over here. They're all modeled after different railways. Uh, there's the Rail Link caboose and the Great Northern caboose. We have the world's only um, locomotive now that's been turned into uh, lodging, which is kind of interesting. It's um, in a partnership with another couple, um, Tom and um, Jamie um, Lambrick uh, actually own the, uh, the locomotive, and we rent it uh, in partnership with them. And it's... Uh, we're actually looking at working on a, a sleeping car and an observation car right now. So we'll have the six cabooses, an observation car, a sleeping car, and the locomotive. So it sort of continues the, the railway theme. 
And where do these uh, cabooses come from? We, we find them from all over. People just selling them and they need salvage. So rather than letting them you know, go to the scrapyard, junkyard, we bring them up here and restore them and put them in place. The four that are up here on the hill were kind of tricky. They were, they were brought in on the railway and then trucked up there because they're a ways away from the lines. These were brought in. Uh, the, the locomotive was found in Wichita, I believe. I think it was Wichita, and then taken to Omaha and restored, and then brought in once it was safe for travel. And they brought in two huge cranes, one of which almost fell over when they were putting it into place, and uh, moved it in here. And then it spent about a year, a little over a year, being restored here on site um, into what it is now. And then the, the JJ caboose is the newest caboose. Um, it's actually also one of our luxury rail cars, is what we call it. These two are done, cable TV, air conditioning, full kitchens, antique barn wood, spalted birch. A little nicer than, you know, the rustic cabins that we have up on the hill. Um, so it's, it's a different, different product line for us altogether, um, of which the observation car and the sleeping car and future plans are, are going to be as well. So pretty excited about those. We just put in six new family cabins last October. Um, they're neat little cabins uh, with a double-sized bed in a back bedroom, all log furnishings, the neat little loft for the kids, private kitchen and a bathroom. Um, they're a lot of fun. We also have 33 kilometers of cross-country ski trails that we maintain and groom daily. So it's, it's really um, much more of a cross-country ski resort that, that I knew about as a local living in the area for 10 years. I was really kind of surprised when I came out here to find out we had one what um, Sunset Magazine called us one of the top 10 uh, cross-country ski resorts in the Rockies. So that's, that's a pretty big honor. We were excited about that. That was just a couple of years ago. So it's um, really the only year-round resort in Glacier National Park, uh, which is another nice feature. Like the meeting pavilion here, we flood that in the winter months and turn it into an ice skating rink so people can come out and go ice skating. That's, you know, and then um, little things like that that really set us apart from the other inns in the area that are, are maintained more by the larger companies. This inn obviously is dedicated to the spirit of American railroading, and it's also a resort as well. Talk to us about the about the folks who come here to experience railway history. What do they often say upon first arriving if they've never been here? Usually, it's uh, wow! If I'd only known about this place, I'd been here sooner. You know, which which is a general manager I love to hear because <laughs> you know that's great. It means all I got to do is market. We'll get more folks here. But uh, it, it's um, it's a very unique place. Uh, having been in the hotel industry, it's not often that you get people that are so excited about hearing the trains right next to their rooms. Usually, that's you know a bad thing. But here, it it's just adds to the ambiance. People find that they sleep better here. That they they love being next to the trains, and it really adds to the adventure and the spirit of this place. And that it's a uh, it's more than just a, a hotel stay. It's it's a true journey. It's a, it's a true experience to to stay here and experience it like it was you know when James J. Hill envisioned Glacier National Park um, I would say that's the biggest thing we get a lot of folks who um, you know have stayed at other historic lodges or, you know in different national parks and they come here and this is just one of the last of the family run places so it's, it's a little more um, homey feeling a little more friendly you know not as not as uh, canned an experience you know we, we let the guests 
like our railroad library. A lot of that has been developed by people who have stayed with us here year after year after year and just love this place and love the history of it. This book is written by some guests who stayed here all the time and um, just felt they needed to, to have more information. So it's people that really care about this place. Um, and that's one of the things that I find uh, most exciting about this is, is, as an employee here, it's, it's my job to help protect it and maintain it and ensure that this legacy continues, you know. You said you've, you've been here just uh, a few months and in the area for 10 years. Um, how did you come to Montana? Everybody who comes to Montana has a story. So, yeah, and I, like a lot of people, came here for the park. I love the mountains. Um, I'm from Maryland originally. Grew up back there. Yeah. Which part of Maryland? Eastern Shore. Eastern Shore, which town? Easton. Eastern Maryland. Yeah. Right here in Talbot County. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. My family's still back there. Yeah, my, family, my grandmother was from Baltimore. That's where I grew up. And... Um, being from the flatlands of the eastern shore of Maryland and the, and the soybean fields, I miss the, the crabs and the oysters. But uh, the mountains is a, is a nice diversion. And uh, my family brought me out here when I was 13. And we went to Many Glacier Hotel, just north of us here in the park. And uh, I got really excited there and uh, met a bunch of the college kids that were there for the summer working and, and told my family at that time, this is what I want to do. I want to come back here and I want to work at the hotel. And they laughed at me. I said, no, I'm going to go into the hotel business. I'm going to run this place. And so 10 years later, when I graduated from college in Virginia, I um, got a job on the Eastern Shore of Maryland uh, running the Inn at Perry Cabin yes, in St. Michael's. Yes. Um, I was there for a while, and then I did uh, the Harbor Inn just down the road in St. Michael's mm-hmm. and um, worked with, um, well, I was at the Inn at Perry Cabin when it was a Laura Ashley Hotel, and when Orient Express bought it, we moved down the road. Got a little burnout on the East Coast, um, had a little brief interlude at the at the homestead in Virginia for a little while in the Greenbrier. I did a couple different programs there for them and then decided I just wanted to get out west. So I came out here to work hopefully as a bellman at Benny Glacier. Ended up the location manager there. Um, then I was um, met my wife that summer. She was the restaurant manager at a hotel down the way. The Swift Current Motor Inn down the way. She was the restaurant manager at the little Italian uh, pizza place there. We of course hit it off, um, stayed in the area. She's originally from the area. We, we both love the mountains. Wanted to be in Whitefish, so tried to move to Whitefish. Couldn't get jobs because it was right after 9-11. I actually closed Rising Sun Motor Inn on September 10th um, and then had uh, about 40 foreign staff that I had to try and get out of the country the next day when all the flights were gone. Um, but couldn't get jobs in Whitefish. We ended up in Steamboat Springs for a couple of years, then came back up here, and I ran the lodge at Whitefish Lake in Whitefish. Which is, you guys were at Good Medicine last night, I think? Yeah, so it was just down the way from Good Medicine. And um, I was there for five years, then met the owner here. Um, kind of kismet. So, you know, long story short, got stuck out here after seeing the mountains and meeting my wife. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, this area definitely has that attraction. And I, like I said, I think that's one of the special things about this place is it, it, it lets that attraction show through. It doesn't try to be a canned experience for everyone. It is what it is, and that's what we offer, and we're proud to do that. And, and one of the unique things about this place is that there's no television in the rooms. There are no telephones in the rooms. So when you come here, you really come in a way to kind of disconnect from everything. It, uh, our former slogan was a uh, place where time stands still and lets you catch up. <laughs> and I like that coming from the East Coast. You know, it's just it's a nice visual image to come out here. No cell phone service, which is difficult to work in, but it's wonderful to take a vacation in uh, and, and truly escape from. 
Uh, we had a lot of longtime guests that were quite upset with us when we put the high-speed internet in downstairs. And I use high-speed in quotation marks because still all we can get is satellite internet. So it's, it's two megabits a, a second or something. But um, we had a lot of folks who were very, very upset with us. Yeah, we don't want to change too much. You know, it's, it's uh, little places like this that remind us of, of what it was like and where we came from. Coming up on World Footprints Radio, we're going underground in the town of Haver. Next, as World Footprints Radio continues. My name's Paul from Billings, Montana, and I'm on a spiritual sojourn here, and I've managed to meet some pretty inspiring people. I'm Ian and Tanya of World Footprints, and I hope that you guys can get out of them what I did. Thanks. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. Hi, I'm Carla Hunsley with Missouri River Country and I live in Fort Peck, Montana. And I'd like to have you all come out and see what a beautiful state we have in the northeast corner of Montana. It's just a wonderful place. And listen to World Footprints Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Our Montana journey continues eastward to the town of Haver. When you leave Essex and the Isaac Walton Inn for Haver, there is no better way to travel than by rail, as we did on Amtrak's Empire Builder. The Great Plains unfold before your very eyes as you reach Haver, Montana. This once rough and tumble town today maintains the spirit of the West as a hard-working town with a colorful past. And nowhere is this more evident than in Haver Beneath the Streets, where the Haver of a century ago has been recreated as it was after a fire destroyed most of the town and the businesses moved underground until the town was rebuilt. Let's go underground with Margie DeRosa Deppmeyer of the Haver Historical Underground for a feel of what it was to experience life in a small town underground. Yeah, so going down, and once you step down at the very end, that little orange stripe down there is still another step. Haver had a fire in 1904, it burned the downtown district, so they chose to rebuild up above, and in the meantime, they made their businesses in the basement. So that's why we have this little walkway system that connects all the businesses to each other. You entered it on top of the sidewalk, and you could just access all the way along into the businesses. So this is a motor parts business, motor um, company. They were upstairs once it got rebuilt up above and they would drive down through here to get cars repaired. They'd go right through this little doorway right here. Mm -hmm. And when they tore up First Street, you can see the walkway system, how it, how it works and you'd enter into it. This is the street, so this was a, where the, the business would have been in the 
little doorway there would have led you like under the sidewalk or under the street even to the other side of the, mm. the highway into another business and the, the windows would have just looked out onto the walkway. Many businesses made the underground their home, including a dental office. And this is the dentist's office. That was a traveling dentist chair. They used it at first out at Fort Assiniboine in the military and to go up and down the High Line they would do their dentist. So after this display we leave, we leave under the sidewalk and then we go into the businesses upstairs, into their basements, is what we're going through. Watch your step here. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about down here. It's hard to take people through and not start chatting. So here, as you can see, where the old window was boarded up, where you would have looked out into the little walkway system. Mm -hmm. Havers' leaders were influenced by Pendleton, Oregon, and the creation of Havers Underground. Well, it mainly started, they went to Pendleton, Oregon, mm -hmm. and saw... They have a, underground. A, a, an underground, too, and some of these business guys thought, we have the same thing in our town. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's go see if we can do the same type of tour. And I think, I don't know, if, you know, I'm not real sure <laughs> at the very beginning what yeah. actually got them motivated other than they knew all these passageways and tunnels. Well, they shouldn't, they're not actually tunnels, they're just passageways. The, tu uh, the tunnels were the, like the steam tunnels that run through the alley. And that's how they first started. They knew of those tunnels, and they thought they could access things through those tunnels also. After a day of work, you could head over to an underground speakeasy, the Sporting Eagle Saloon, for a libation or two. This is our Sporting Eagle Saloon. It was in this location. We, we know where some of these are with old fire maps, and um, an old-timer told us that this was down here, and he called it the Sporting Eagle Saloon. And he said that it just had a plank on a couple barrels and a mirrored wall, or mirrored uh, wall piece behind it. And when they were cleaning out these uh, areas down here, they came across that plank and that backboard. So they think that's possibly the old, the same original bar piece. Like the wall on to your left, if you're facing that way, is the original wall. I it think is. it would surprise people that in a small town that there was a purposeful piece of town planning to uh, create an underground city, oh. essentially. Well, it was actually it was built out of necessity. I mean, the businesses had to, had to reopen again after the fire, mm -hmm. and so they just started below and then built up above, which took a couple of years to do. So in, in the meantime, they could still conduct businesses. If you think a bar underneath the town in the Prohibition era is a big deal, Haver had its own set of taboo institutions there, like a bordello. This is the bordello, <laughs> and we know it was in this location, too. When they, when they started this project, the numbers were on the wall. Um, we assume they belong to the bordello, but we have no confirmation of that. And we do know that they just had little single curtains in between the beds. Um... The bed frames were found down here. We don't know whether they were part of it or not. And if you, if you look beyond the um, clothes here, you can see the old doorway that's been cemented in. So the understanding is you could go through the doorway, under the highway, into the hotel across the street. So if you gentlemen would come and stay at the hotel and slide in under the street, and nobody would know they were even coming over here, supposedly. And then this location also, prior to it being a bordello, was a Chinese safe house. That um, with the railroad came some Chinese laborers, and some stayed behind. Mm. And they were persecuted quite a bit by the townspeople, so they kind of lived underground a little bit. And they had these little safe houses all around town that they just tunneled out. 
And this location was one of the safe houses. And pardon the irony here, there is also a meat market, too. There's a chopping vat, there's a large renderer, and there's a mixing vat, all those, powered by a gasoline-driven drive. And this is a Pioneer meat market. This was its location, too. There's a picture of it here. It was in this spot. People notice seafood in the showcase, and a lot of this is because of the railroad coming through. Could bring seafood, so the railroad played a pretty big part in Hatter's history. Haver had a cigar factory. This is a little display telling us about that. Employed up to 20-some people during its heyday. As you can see, the underground was a colorful place, even for its off-color businesses. One of the prominent town businessmen was Shorty Young, whose office is recreated underground for all to see. Shorty Young's office. This is another actual location. He was a prominent Haver local businessman and owned quite a bit of this uh, real estate and had some elegant bars and a concert theater. He, did, he didn't believe in banks, so he had his own safe put in. And he had a bar upstairs. Shorty died penniless. He was wealthy throughout much of his life, but he died penniless. And his estate brought um, still brings in money to this day. It's been managed by some intelligent people. And to this day, that he still contributes to it. He mainly wants it to go to children, so there's um, three organizations, like the Masons and the Al As you leave Shorty's office, you go past an historic still. Yes, these were big in Haver in the vicinity. Had to have a still. This was donated by a local family who wishes to remain anonymous. They said we can take that on the table. It's just kind of supplemented. Lots of legitimate commerce took place in Havers Underground, like Boone's Drugstore, alongside the illegitimate, like the opium den. This is our Boone's drug. And all these prescriptions and everything are actual drugs that came out of a pharmacy. Very fascinating. You get down here and have more time to look at, at what it is, because, you know, back then they didn't just pop pills. They mixed and grinded. And, mm -hmm. and the little piece back here is tamale, Jim. Tamale shop, and he was. Have, tamales were have his first ethnic, ethnic food, and he was actually from Afghanistan. And so we have just shown um, a piece there that would demonstrate his tamale shop. And it was located all over Haver. He started out selling it out of a, like a wagon and then out of little, you know, baskets, and then got a little bigger shop, a little bigger, and then he eventually had a whole restaurant. So again, now we're below the sidewalk. The sidewalk. When we leave this building, we're going to walk over the top of the sidewalk that we're underneath. And this is our Chinese laundry. It was so it was not located here either because this was the walkway. And we have one of three opium dens that we know existed in Haver. And the pardon? These are the pipes. Uh huh. Yep, that was found in, in the walkway system downtown Haver by a local fire chief. 
property building. Yeah, there's an old Chinese rule here. So you said it was a Chinese safe house and one of the others. So that would have been the, the railroad probably. Was, they came with the railroad, railroad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and uh, stayed behind. Some moved on, some stayed. And this is our fountain barber shop. It was located across the street. This is all the original barbershop equipment. And if Boone's Medicines couldn't get town folks back to health, Holland and Bonine had their underground mortuary just around the corner. Call baskets, that's to go pick up the deceased. Very interesting. This came from um, a Holland and Bonine funeral home. So this, James Holland is the same Maybe. Holland family that first started the mercantile and then he did the mortuary. They said that a, uh, the pickup truck was named um, for it started with a funeral home business because it was pickup. And just to make sure your affairs were in order before you left the underground, Havers Max Coor, attorney at law, was there to draft a will for your estate. After the break, the next stop on our Montana journey takes us on safari in the Great Plains. I think it's a few bit. Next on World Footprints Radio. Hi, I'm Carl Mann from Fort Peck, Montana. I'd like to invite you here. It's a beautiful place, hunting, fishing, summer playhouse theater. I'd like you to listen to World Footprints Radio. For the latest and last-minute travel deals, visit the WorldFootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners. You can't find these deals anywhere else and we've seen sales for $9 per night for hotels and $49 airline tickets. So stop by worldfootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also make sure you visit the travel marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. Hello, this is Rod Stewart for Red. Your lifestyle is your business, but when you drive drunk, you become everybody's business. Don't drink and drive. Be smart, plan ahead, and choose a designated driver. Remember, music lives, and so should you. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. I'm Courtney Moles. I am with Philco Economic Growth Council in Malta, Montana. I am a transplant from New Orleans, and Montana is a beautiful state. I listen to World Footprints Radio. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. And welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Our final stop on our Montana journey today takes us north of Haver, near the U.S.-Canadian border where we meet Jacob Dusick of Sage Safaris. This Montana native, you wouldn't know from his English accent, along with his wife Sarah, have created a one-of-a-kind Great Plains safari experience here in Montana. As we head out with Jacob on safari, there's an appreciation for how interconnected the lives of the farmer and the wildlife that live off the land are. 
for them. Of course, I guess it's higher rank among the Yeah, that's what yeah, the, during during the day now they're feeding in the in the leftover wheat that the combines didn't harvest. So this this was a wheat field earlier this year, and uh, a lot of the grain fell on the ground. So the birds are in there during the day to uh, feed, and then they go into the thicker cover in the evening to hide from predators. You can see all of the holes that we're driving around. Those are all from badgers. <laughs> That's why the road is so rough. As vast as the land is, even seeing it with your own eyes, one can only capture how enormous Sage Safari's lands are. What we're driving on now is two square miles. Um, it's about uh, 1,280 acres. Um, and we, we have access to, to use uh, about 23,000 acres. So um, it's much more than, than any one group would be able to use in, the, in a week. So. Jacob and Sarah have traveled the world to bring the best outdoor experience to Montana's Great Plains with Sage Safari. Well, we, we've, taken, we've taken things from quite a few different um, uh, businesses, I suppose, and different concepts of, of how to do things, and we've mixed them all together. Um, so partly for the safari concept. From season to season, this vast land changes. The barren lands of the fall and winter give way to water in the spring and summer. You probably wouldn't know now, but in June we, we could canoe all the way from the barn up in front of us to, to the tents. It was full of water all across. Uh, if you can see that flock of birds flying there, there's a sharp-tailed grouse. They just flew behind these two trees. Mm. There they go. The coolies, the water feature of the sage safari lands, show how dynamic this ecosystem is in the plains because it's hard to imagine what looks like a wheat field in winter can be a stream or lake that you can canoe in the spring and summer. I suppose it's how you define creek, but this is, we would call this a coolie, um, and that's one of the channels in the coulee. Um, so normally that would run with water every spring. Um, and you can see that there was quite a bit of water in it earlier this year from where the grass has died. But um, the, the ground, particularly in this location, is it seeps quite quickly, so the water only stays for a few months once it's there. One of the ironies of this land is that sagebrush and sage trees are rare, as non-native grasses support much of the farming and wildlife. We, we have very few sage grouse left. Normally we drive across here, but one of the trees has fallen across the dam, so one of, uh, one of our, uh, kind of our signature dish or meal is uh, stuffed loin of pork, and it's got an apricot and uh, sagebrush stuffing. Mm. Stop. So what we're driving through now, the, the taller brush is the sagebrush. Um, and then the, the grass you can see here is, is crested wheatgrass, which is um, an imported plant species from Russia, actually. Um, I think it was brought here in the 30s and the 40s uh, to try and improve the range line. Um, what we're driving through now is one of the grass crops that my family raises. It's called green needle grass. Green needle? Yeah. Some taller stuff that looks like wheat. That's a food plot for the wildlife. 
Even as sage safari land evolves from season to season, so has the nature of the farming, ranching, and recreation from generation to generation. So, before my family bought this ranch, it was part of a much larger ranch called the Signal Butte Ranch. This, this was the ranch headquarters probably in the 1930s. Signal Butte Ranch. I think there's still another Signal Butte Ranch, but it's not, not related to the original one. So this down here on the left, in the in the bottom, this was the the well for the ranch. And the the building is sunk down into the well shaft, and the, the pump is not. Here there's a, almost like a cave, and that's called a root cellar. I think it stays about 45 or 50 degrees year-round in there. But um, the, the, the entire roof, I mean the room is, is quite big, and the, the entire roof is made of willows that were woven together. At the time these buildings were in use, this was a sheep ranch. That's what the barn was for. Can guests participate in uh, agricultural activities as well? If can they do any farming or anything with uh, uh, the animals and so forth? Um, we can certainly organize that, yeah. Um, horseback riding we can do, um, and we, could, we can arrange, if they'd be interested in like a cattle drive, okay. we can arrange in, uh, farming would be a, a little bit more complicated mm -hmm. unless they wanted to do some menial tasks like picking rocks or okay. something like that. So almost all of the yeah, farming is very mechanized now. So mm -hmm. uh, another one of our activities is uh, canoeing, canoe trips, things like that. One of the joys of being on safari is that you never know what you'll encounter that suddenly becomes the object of your attention. And I believe on the road in front of us is a pheasant, I think. Oh, it is, yeah. I see. We'll see in a minute. Yeah. Oh, I can see. Yeah, it's definitely right, not right. Can, That's okay. There are two very large owls that live in this barn, so I'm hoping when we drive by that we'll see them. <laughs> I think it's a female. Can I get Joey from the car? So yeah, yeah. Oh, 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 I see. Oh, yeah, I see. Right oh, yeah. Hey. It's a young female, I think. It's not very... Uh, Oh, there she goes. Oh. <laughs> now this is a 50-50 chance, but there are owls that live in this barn, and I'm hoping if we walk to the front door, they might fly up over the top of us. If, if anyone is interested. They're very hard to pick out now. They're still there and moving. some movement up just below the horizon, below the power poles, just disappeared again. A lot of the hunters in Montana hunt from their vehicles, so they get very wary of vehicles. And the animals in the wild are rather intelligent, from gathering their food to avoiding predators like human hunters. This is another food plot below us for the wildlife. The deer? Yeah, I would think if it wasn't hunting season, they would be there already, yeah. Yeah, they have a little campfire chat and decide <laughs> hunting season over. There's a, another pheasant on the road in front of us here. There's 
I can probably get closer in the car than you can on foot, so I'll just try and drive past it and see what happens. I don't think it knows what to expect with the vehicle. It's crawling through the grass here. Five feet from the vehicle. They're well camouflaged. From the bumpy road we drove on while on our safari, you can appreciate the impact animals like badgers, hawks, and humans have on the ecosystem of the Great Plains. But in the end, you can't fool Mother Nature. So if you look out there, you can see all the mountains. All of those are from badgers, just in the last year. Yeah, just, just one year of badgers. When the farmer plows his field, next year they all disappear again. sense that life is very different in the Great Plains, and nowhere is this more evident than with the border crossing between the U.S. and Canada, just a few miles away. The horizon you can see there is in Canada. How far are we from about 20 miles from the border? Um, about eight. Eight? Yeah. In those buildings you can see uh, just there, are, that's the border crossing, oh. port of entry. From farming to safari to the abundant natural resources of the land in Montana's Great Plains, we came away with an appreciation how important the land is in the lives of the people who make their living and home here. The farmers don't really have any choice whether the, uh, the gas is, is drilled or not, um, because most of the farmers want the mineral rights uh, under the ground. up the first leg of our Montana journey. We'll present more of our Montana journey later this season and we can tell you what a treasure of a state Montana is. We hope you enjoyed our show today and we always look forward to spending quality travel time with you. 
and to connecting with you in real time during the week on Facebook, Twitter, and our other social networks. So follow us there and sign up for our newsletter and travel deals at worldfootprints.com. We're Tanya Nee and Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week. Same time, same frequency. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi guys, my name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada, Banff National Park, natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio, because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, that are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.